0: Welcome to the best of trending in education. This is Mike Palmer. This is our Labor Day edition. We're showcasing a conversation that I had with Dr. Leo Casey, the executive director of the Albert Schenker Institute. He's also the author of a book called The Teacher Insurgency, a strategic and organizing perspective. I had Leo on. Uh, a little while back now, and this is one of our most downloaded episodes. It's one that folks have mentioned to me as a show that they listen to and made them think more. And it also is a topic as we head back into school and we celebrate Labor Day. It's a time to think about teachers, think about their ability to act collectively and get organized. It is an interesting time to be thinking about that as we head back to school and what we're hoping will become a little bit more of a normalized K-12 school experience, higher ed school experience, uh, just back to work if that is what's going on in your world. I think there's a lot to learn from his perspective, his deep experience, and it's a really interesting conversation. We'll be picking up with our seventh season of Trending in Ed next. But before we do, here's one more stroll down memory lane appreciating the best episodes of Trending in Ed as we head into our 500th episode very soon in the fall. Thanks as always for listening. This is the best of Trending in Education. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined today by Dr. Leo Casey, who's the executive director of the Albert Shanker Institute. He's written a really interesting book called The Teacher Insurgency, A Strategic and Organizing Perspective. We're going to dig into that. A lot of those topics are zeitgeisty, as I like to say. But before we get to any of that, I want to begin by welcoming Leo to the show. Leo, welcome to Treading in Education. Thank you. I'm glad to be here you're someone who's had a really interesting storyline in terms of your connection to teaching in a number of different capacities, which have really culminated in more advocacy and awareness of teachers and how they can protect their interests and get organized and do some really important things, uh, which we'll get into in a bit. But as we get started, I'd love to hear your origin story. What got you to this point in your professional life? I am the son of two
1: New York City school teachers. In my late 20s, I was working on a dissertation in political philosophy, which I interrupted to do political organizing in New York City. It was based on the soon-to-be-proven false premise that there would be a backlash against Reagan's conservative policies. After I decided that I wanted to go back doing my dissertation, I needed to find some way to support myself. And so I got a job in New York City public schools. In very short order, I fell in love with teaching my students who were inner city students. In 14 years, in the first high school, I taught in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. I had not one white student. They were young people who had been left behind by the policies of the Reagan administration in that process it became clear to me that if i was going to have a positive influence beyond my particular classroom that would require being involved in the union i became involved in the union i became active when i had to have my school building closed down because they had torn out asbestos containing material without mm. having gone through the required procedures and protocols through that work in the union and And after many years as a classroom teacher and a local union chapter leader, I became a vice president of the teachers union in New York City. I taught together many of those years with Randy Weingarten, who was the AFT president. And when she came down to the AFT, she asked me to come down and head up the Schenker Institute because I had this uh, academic training. And so it was a felicitous combination of practical experience, and intellectual preparation that led me to the Schenker
0: Institute. What is the Schenker Institute? The Schenker Institute is
1: probably best understood as a strategic think tank inside the AFT. We focus on three areas that come out of Schenker's own life as a public intellectual. His focus on trade unions, his focus on young people and public education, and his focus on democracy. We do public events, conferences, we do some of our own research and we try to be a place where we can think about the long-term direction of public education, teacher unionism and unionism more generally.
0: That's part of what we wanted to to dig into a bit with you today was the recent pre-COVID history of teacher unions and teacher strikes and teacher collective organization which was a A relatively hot topic in education prior to the pandemic. And then the pandemic has been its own maelstrom of complexity. Can we begin with the history leading up to the last year or so to capture the collective energy around teachers taking action? So, the first part of the book is an attempt to provide
1: an explanation for the wave of teacher strikes that occurred in 18 and 19. Those strikes were really, something that took everyone by surprise. The decade leading up to that had been a period of real setbacks for teachers, men for teacher unions. When the strikes actually broke out, it was in the middle of the Supreme Court's deliberations over the Janus case, which would be decided as we expected against unions, mm-hmm. and against their members. One thing I thought was important to do, which hadn't been done in any of the literature, was to try to provide an explanation for why they occurred at this point in history. There's two sets of issues that are important. One set of issues um, is around the underfunding of public education. Since the Great Recession of 2008, we've been through a decade of intense austerity, underfunding, and that had effects on the quality of education, had effects on teachers' salaries, mm-hmm. on their pensions. So that was one set of issues. Another set of issues was around teacher professionalism and the policies that gathered steam and No Child Left Behind and Raced to the Top with their focus, particularly on standardized testing, had begun to undermine the professional authority of teachers in the classroom and their ability to provide their students with the sort of education that they believe their students really needed. Mm -hmm. Those two sets of issues came together, but they'd been issues that had been longstanding for some time, at Mm -hmm. least a decade. So the question was why in 18 and 19 did these strikes take place? Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a number of different reasons. I think one set of reasons is that for the first time, In American history, in a couple of decades, there were all of these mass protests, many of the teachers who were involved in these strikes had been involved in these mass protests, particularly the ones that broke out after Trump was elected. And so they came to this time period with the sort of understanding that protests could be efficacious in a way that they hadn't previously.
0: So beginning with the the Women's March, 17, and and then proceeding from there led into this activity in 18 and 19. The
1: second thing was that a real gap had begun to open up between the expectations that teachers had when they entered teaching. They're not grand expectations. They're, They're modest ones that you could have a middle class standard of living that, you wouldn't have to worry about your health insurance, you would be able to retire in security and dignity. Mm-hmm. And you would be able to have some meaning in your life from teaching young people. Because of what happened, there began to be a real what I call expectations gap between what teachers expected and what previous generations of teachers had received yeah. and what they were actually seeing. The third development was the the political landscape of education politics was changing in some dramatic ways. And part of that you could see in changing election results, where we'd been through a period of time when people had been elected, particularly mayors, but also some governors who consider themselves education reformers. There was a wave of new mayors and new governors that had a very different sort of approach education politics and what was happening was that the policies of education reform had become the status quo previously they had run against what they said was the status quo once that happened you were able to assess whether they were able to deliver on your promise increasingly it was clear that they had not that began to create a different sort of educational politics, a different landscape. Those three factors were crucial in combination with the issues for producing the teacher strikes.
0: Can you shape up for us the size and variety of strike activity? Because if I recall, there were a few different flavors of collective action that were happening in this window.
1: It all started in West Virginia. West Virginia had a tradition of statewide action because... Unlike most states, the salaries and the health insurance and the pensions are basically set at the state level. The other thing that is interesting about West Virginia is that about 30 years ago, they had a statewide strike. Really the only precedent for the strikes of what I call Teacher Spring, which happened in 2018, was West Virginia. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a historical memory. There weren't that many people left from 30 years ago, but the oral tradition of it had been passed down.
0: And also, I imagine West Virginia does have a history of a strong labor presence. Teachers were often the children and the grandchildren of miners, even Mm -hmm. though the,
1: the coal mining industry in West Virginia is certainly not what it once was, but there was that history. The other thing that was interesting about West Virginia that was different from the other states that followed it was that they had a relatively strong teacher union presence between the NEA affiliate, the AFT affiliate, and the independent union of support workers, they had about 75% density in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. They were able with a strike to win us a very significant concession in terms of the salaries that they were being given. The mm-hmm. example of West Virginia set off a prairie fire across the country, where other states, and in 2018, they were primarily red states where there had been state governments that had used austerity policies in a rather extreme way. There began a whole series of strikes, Arizona, Oklahoma, West Virginia. There's a whole wave of those strikes in 2018.
0: And just to clarify, those strikes were sanctioned by the unions, or were there wildcat strikes in this mix as well? There was both. I think they were
1: sanctioned by the unions, but there was also, I think, a significant spontaneous uprising from below. Teachers saw the example of West Virginia, and there was interest in it. So it wasn't just like the unions decided that we need to organize a strike, it, it was the unions responding in significant measure. To pressure from below, right, and in these states, they were states where teachers were at the very bottom in terms of salaries and health yeah. benefits.
0: And even you're calling it a teacher spring. To me, in some ways, signaled that uh, collective action from a grassroots level. So it was teachers yep. on an individual level, maybe because they were activated by some of this protest culture that we were starting to see emerge, saw the ability to take that type of action, and then the union was very supportive. And then in 2019, the expansion of these strikes
1: to a number of states that were blue states, California, Illinois, being the most important ones in Los Angeles and Chicago, the second and third biggest school districts in the nation, Oakland, Denver. There's a number of these strikes, and they point to the fact that even though situation was particularly critical in the red states, there had been rather significant underfunding of education. In blue states as well, California had a longstanding problem due to Proposition 13 Mm -hmm. with funding for public education. And they were also feeling the effects of the sort of deprofessionalization Um, that came with No Child left Behind and Raced to the Top. So you then have what is truly a national movement in both red states and blue states.
0: Mm -hmm. That sets the table in many ways for the transformative year that was 2020, where I guess in a scenario-based way of thinking, there was another progression, which had 2020 not been a pandemic year, the actions in 18 and 19 may have led to who knows what. But the externalities of the pandemic hit, I think for the, the national conversation, at least perhaps the global conversation, teachers became very much more the front lines of a lot of our cultural understanding of how to address the pandemic. Also, the fact that parents now were becoming involved and were starting to understand the teacher's role in, in a very human way. In the development of their children, 2020 must have been a very transformative year for you as someone who's looking at the labor situation for teachers in America. There's two really
1: salient points of continuity from the strikes of the teacher insurgency into 2020. The first is that those strikes had established teachers and their unions as significant power centers. And of all of the people who were frontline workers, if you want, teachers were the one that were actually able to make demands that had some force behind them in order for them to go back to work. It needed to be safe.
0: Yeah, I would say teachers and the NBA, perhaps. Yeah, that makes sense. Because of the action in 18 and 19, teacher unions had a profile and a readiness to represent in a more forceful way the political power that teachers have. Yeah. And
1: the other thing that is an important point of continuity is that one of the reasons why the strikes of the teacher insurgency were so successful and why they garnered unprecedented public support was that teacher unions had pursued what is called bargaining for the common good. In their demands, they were concerned not only for issues that directly affected their salaries and their working conditions, they were concerned about the quality of education, what the experience of school was for their students, the connection between schools and communities. So that bargaining for the common good perspective was very important. And in 2020, there's a big challenge for teachers and teacher unions in how one pursues bargaining for the common good, because there are now two really important goods which are in significant tension with each other. The one good obviously being the health and safety of teachers, students, educational workers, and their families, because obviously all of those people go home to families. But the other good is the importance and the value of in-person learning for young people. And everything we had been saying about virtual charter schools has been demonstrated in Spades over the last year. It's quite clear that without in-person learning, the well-being, academic, mental health, yeah, social well-being of students suffers greatly. Mm-hmm. So there are these two goods that are in tension with each other. Mm -hmm. It becomes very important for teacher unions, when they're beset on all sides here, to pursue a policy which is one of, we want to open schools. We need to open schools safely. We need to actually pay attention to both of those goods. There are folks who only want to pay attention to the safety good. And if that's all you pay attention to, you basically eviscerate in-person education. And there are folks who only want to pay attention to in-person education, and if you do that without the proper safety conditions, then you put the health and safety of people at risk. So it's been quite a bit of a challenge, and it has been, I think, made all the more difficult by the fact that particularly in recent months, there are those in the Republican Party and those connected To Donald Trump, that have decided that this is an opportunity to try to make a wedge issue out of school reopening and to separate those parents who are eager to go back, who are primarily white and middle class parents from public education and make teacher unions the villain in that scenario. So that's a challenge, but I think it's a challenge that teacher unions are up to. It's been a battle in places like Chicago and Philadelphia. to get the conditions that are necessary for a safe reopening of schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in most places, we've been successful in doing that.
0: It does feel like there is an opportunity to seize here around the ability to change, period. The idea that many of these structures, which were thought of as there's so much inertia, status quo is generally the way things are gonna go. You saw the insurgency was maybe questioning some of that, but then the forcing function of the pandemic reminded us that many of the things that we assumed we had to do, including the high-stakes testing, suddenly were no longer as essential when the public health concerns and some of these other concerns came to bear. It does seem like there is an opportunity to shake up the status quo and potentially defend and advocate for teachers' role in whatever the new normal will be in new ways. Where do you see this heading now that it looks like the vaccine will get out there more? Any thoughts on where we may head next? Overall, I'm
1: positive. I think the replacement of the Trump administration with the Biden-Harris administration gives us a national government, which is prepared to do what it needs to do for say, reopening. The announcement yesterday that they're going to prioritize vaccinations for teachers means that in relatively short order, we should have most teachers vaccinated. If they're talking about vaccinating all adults by May, certainly- right. Um, within the next month, six weeks at the most, we should have all of the teachers vaccinated. And I think that is a sufficient precondition to open in-person learning. It's going to be complicated because students are not going to be vaccinated and there's are still going to be parents who don't want to send their children to school under those circumstances. Yep. So we will have the logistical challenge of doing both in-person learning and remote learning. The other challenge here will be what happens in places like Florida and Texas, where the state governments have been remarkably cavalier about conditions of safety generally and schools in particular. And so the idea that in Texas, starting right now, they're going to eliminate a mask mandate is really... A very terrible idea, particularly when we're so close to the point where everyone could be vaccinated, to do it now. Sort of like asking for a new spike Yeah. in the pandemic. There are some really perilous short-term issues in states like that, but I think if we can get to the point where we have that vaccination, we should be able to see our way through the situation and hopefully in September have a completely full reopening. in Yeah.
0: And then maybe on top of that, my perception, at least based on many of the conversations I've been having, some of the things I've been reading, is that there will be renewed awareness of the criticality of the role that teachers can play in the, the development and socialization of the rising generations, which I think there was a notional understanding of that. I think people generally believed it, but they took a lot of this stuff for granted. I tend to think we're going to need to be much more intentional about our thinking about the role of the teacher and where we see it going collectively. What about the awareness of the needs of teachers and the opportunity to ensure that there is more dignity and respect provided to our teachers.
1: So one of the factors leading up to the teacher insurgency strikes was a decline in the pipeline because teaching conditions had deteriorated because young people entering the profession were both having to go much deeper into debt to pay f- for their education, far out facing other professional master's degrees. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, their salaries were falling behind similar professions. All of that combined with the sense that teaching was not the rewarding profession that it had been because of the deprofessionalization yeah, uh, created a real decline in students that were going into programs. The evidence that we have from various sources is that teachers, particularly older teachers who were concerned about their health, have been leaving the profession, mostly retiring at a much greater pace because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So there will be a really critical issue once we come out of this pandemic in terms of being able to attract and retain high-quality teachers in that profession. The issues that led to teacher insurgency, if in some sense we put them in abeyance because we've been so focused on the issue of school reopening, they will come back in a vengeance and we will need to really have policies that address them, or we will be back in the very situation we were in in 18 and 19.
0: What about the work of the union and the role that labor can play as we begin a new administration?
1: What is Really encouraging about the Biden administration. Today, the new education secretary was being sworn in. A real breath of fresh air after the last four years, an education secretary that at every turn was attacking public schools and teachers and teacher unions. So there's a possibility here for some real partnership. One of the silver linings of the last year of our political life has been that there is a recognition that having a school system that was so inordinately focused on standardized testing and English and math has sidelined civics education in a way when good, high quality civics education is something we desperately need mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah, and I think there will be opportunities for teacher unions to work with the administration around. Things like how to really invigorate civics education in this country and how do we have it focused on not traditional civics, what's the structure of government, but actually on students learning the skills and knowledge they need to be active citizens in a democracy yeah so that that's a possibility I think for some real productive work. There are a lot of other issues where we're looking to be working together with the biden administration. We will be focused with them a lot in the next few months on reopening schools but trust me there <laughs> there are a whole lot of other issues teed up and the other thing that is really heartening is that just over the last weekend President Biden made a statement on the importance of unions, on how unions were the force that built the middle class in the United States, that working people have a right to organize into unions and to bargain collectively, and that employers need to respect that right. It it was made in the context of the upcoming vote of Amazon workers in Alabama, Hmm. but it was much broader, and there has never been a United States president not FDR, not Truman, who has made such a clear, unequivocal statement on the importance of unions. And mm-hmm. I think that's a expression of a philosophy of this administration that will make it very productive partnership between unions and the folks who are running the government.
0: I'm getting some cautious optimism from you, uh, Leo, which is <laughs> always hopeful when we have somebody looking ahead in the future. What other trends are you seeing? Are there any areas of concern? Are there any places where our listeners, if they wanted to get activated or if they wanted to advocate for anything, is there anything out there? To go
1: back to those issues, which motivated the 18 and 19 strikes, what is important is insisting that state governments and local governments properly fund education. I think with the stimulus package now, we'll be able to avert what really would have been some calamitous effects on public education, Mm -hmm. um, but also to take up these issues of professionalism and recreating a professional culture and restoring some professional authority to teachers so that the profession itself will become attractive to teachers. Once again, they will feel that they can enter it and feel like they're living a life of meaning a a life that is productive, that there is a pleasure and a purpose in being a teacher that has been lost, I think, unfortunately, over much of the last decade.
0: Maybe a heightened awareness of the gaps you're describing, the idea that this profession needs our support. And many of the folks who listen to this show may not be frontline educators, but they tend to be advocates for educators. So how do we Continue to protect and grow the profession so that it's able to perform the functions that we need it to perform, I think is great advice. And now, as we're getting close to to wrapping up with you, Leo, what about other things that you're noticing as we're heading into this decade? Is there anything that's capturing your imagination that may be worth sharing with our listeners?
1: One of the things I did in the book was talk about what it meant for teachers to organize for collective action. The book is, in some ways, a testament. To the power of collective action. The teachers can be a force for constructive, progressive change in their schools when they do come together in collective action. In the last section of the book, I talk about teaching and the discourses of teaching, which form our conception of what it means to be a teacher, the teachers think of themselves in and that they act on. And those discourses, a, a discourse of nurturance, Our our care for young people, a discourse of professionalism, how we come together as a community of professionals and create the sort of standards and capacity to produce high quality teaching are a discourse of labor and craft and how we sustain a craft through processes of mentorship. And lastly, and in some ways most important, giving the challenges that our country faces, teaching as democratic intellectual work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how in our classrooms, in our schools, we're able to create and sustain in the young people that we care for mm-hmm. uh, a culture of democratic citizenship. Now, mm-hmm. uh, there is no question that we are in a very critical, even perilous moment in our nation's political life. The November election, our ability to get past what happened on January 6th has given us some breathing space, but it has by no means settled the question about whether the republic, as Benjamin Franklin would say, is something we are going to keep. And so I think the role of teacher unions and public schools, both of which are very important for our democratic health are something that we should be paying increasing attention to in the context of what we as teachers do collectively in our actions.
0: Now that's coming, not just from the executive director of the Albert Schenker Institute, it's coming from a multiple award-winning civics teacher who really was doing this many years ago, and a lot of what you were doing Back in Crown Heights is still needed by many of our teachers and many of us who are thinking about the future of education to this day. So very much appreciate the opportunity to get you on the show, Leo.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: For our listeners, hopefully you enjoy what you're hearing. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, write us a five-star review, share the love. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.